This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried. This is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal obsessions. Nope, wrong show. What the fuck is it then? Podcast. Amazing colossal Pod- podcast. Ah. I'm sorry, I have the wrong room. Hi, <laughs> this is Gilbert Gottfried. This is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is backed by popular demand and also because he's a mensch and we like hanging out with him. He's a singer, musician, record producer, composer, playwright, novelist, and screenwriter, as well as our resident expert on the career of Casey Adams, <laughs> a.k.a. Max Showalter. He's won Tony Awards, a Drama Desk Award, and the Edgar Award for Mystery Writing. And in 2014, ASCAP presented him with its prestigious George M. Cohan Award, acknowledging both the diversity and depth of his career as a composer, lyricist, playwright and novelist (laughs) he's worked with everyone from Barbara Streisand to Jerry Lewis and his songs have been recorded by the likes of Barry Manilow Dionne Warwick Dolly Parton Judy Collins and Britney Spears Frank Sinatra was an admirer and he met Groucho Marx and Orson Welles, too. Please welcome back one of our favorite guests and favorite people, and a man who can recall all the surnames of Lucille Ball used in her four sitcoms. (laughs) A man of many talents, our pal Rupert Holmes. Hello, Gil. Hi. Thank you for that. So, <laughs> welcome a, back, Rupert. I'm delighted to be here. Frank. Before I we really... miss it, can you name? I found no, this in deep he, research. He, 
He picked the one. I can tell you that all the road movies, okay? Road to Singapore, Road to Morocco, Road to Re- the one damn now, wait a thing minute. I can't do. I found a 1986 People magazine interview She did my favorite husband. She did. I, that was my favorite husband, and she played, I can't remember. Now, I don't know all the surnames. Okay. That's the, you picked the one. Okay. The one. People magazine lied. They said you used to use it as a, as a device when you were compute, uh, commuting from New Jersey to New York City. I, I, you know, maybe that's true. That would have been like 1980. So it's yeah. only, it's only <laughs> 37. You know, how that slipped out of my head, I have no idea. Uh, now, Lucy now, Carmichael. The really scary oh, Lucy Carmichael show. Right, yeah. And Lucy Carter. Yeah. The Lucy, the really scary Lucy show, that was Life with Lucy. That was one of the oh, worst. Was, she was 90 That, or that probably should have been paired with Make Room for Granddad. Oh, my oh, God, yes. Yes. <laughs> and you know what he's known for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it had to do with glass coffee. Lu- Lucy Ricardo, yeah. Lucy Car- Carmichael, Lucy, Lucy Carter, Carter. Um, here's Lucy, Carter, yeah. and finally Lucy uh, Barker on uh, Life with Lucy. Yeah. And we won't go into the stone pillow where she played the homeless woman. She did have the... the I Love Lucy <clears throat> was spun sort of out of the momentum of a radio show she did called My Favorite Husband. Yes, correct. With Very Richard good. Denning. Very and good. And I can't remember if she was a Lucy on that or not. I Didn't can't. you work with Gail Gordon? Was Gail Gordon I on did. I did, a, I did an episode of Hi Honey, yeah. I'm Home yeah. uh, with Gail Gordon. Yeah. Now, he was the greatest. Yeah. Gail Gordon was incredible. Now, that was one of those characters that, you know, it was Gail Gordon, uh, Frank Nelson. Yeah. And the great Gildersleeves oh, yeah. were all that kind of They were all ripping each other off. Right? Yeah. There were two great Gildersleeves. There was Willard Waterman and Harold Peary. Peary, I think that's it. Wow. Harold Peary. And they were they sounded completely identical. Yeah. They would all do that. But Frank Overton. Uh, um, uh, Frank Nelson. Uh, Frank Nelson. I'm saying yes. Frank yeah. Overton. Yeah. Frank, Frank Nelson was- Frank Overton has also come up on yeah. this show. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. But Frank Nelson, he, he was, for your listeners, he was, he was, yes, right? Wasn't yeah. On the Jack Benny but he was, show. It did, had some wonderful sketches at the train station uh, where, the, where yes. they'd be in the train station yes. for like 20 minutes and every announcement and trying to re- return the tickets and yeah. also Christmas shopping episodes with Frank oh, Nelson. terrific. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. And Mel Blanc. Yeah, I'll that's wrap, where oh, yeah. Mel Blanc winds up shooting himself. <laughs> I'll, wrap, <laughs> I'll wrap the package real nice. I'll make it real nice for you. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm thinking it will go with these shoelaces. Okay. Yeah, that's We've lost, uh, we're now into incoherency here. Well, uh, so before we jump to, and uh, to go back to yeah. the intro, uh, we lost Jerry a couple of months ago. Yeah, we did. And uh, so you worked with him on the Nutty Professor musical? I Yes, I, I worked with him uh, for, other than some film work he did, this was the last big thing that he did in his life. For, and uh, he directed the musical. I wrote it with Marvin Hamlish. And this is, this is Jerry Lewis, who, um, prior to the JFK assassination, um, the, the worst news that anyone in my uh, world had was that Dean and Jerry were breaking up. I remember I saw Partners at the Pearl River Movie Theater, and we were playing on the playground, and someone came over like they had news about death in the family they said Dean and Jerry are breaking up and um and it was it was shattering I, I I've been watching a lot of the Colgate comedy hours since, oh, yeah? since uh, he passed and and what those two guys were doing they had about six minutes of material 
And then they just, <laughs> and then they just, I, I loved it. They would continually be stuck with eight minutes of dead airtime live on television and they had to fill it. And they would, and he would. Uh, the, the pratfalls that he would take, mm-hmm. and the, uh, just amazing stuff. This guy, um, you know, uh, the idea, before there were the Beatles, uh, Dean and Jerry were the coolest guys on the planet and who you'd want to be. And it was only a matter, no one, we didn't know it would be cool to be Dean. We thought it would be great to be Jerry. But it was a, it was a really, when I wrote Say Goodnight Gracie about, about George Burns mm-hmm. and, and Gracie Allen, I realized Martin and Lewis were a boy and girl act. It's, I mean, I had a, a, a heterosexual boy girl act. Jerry just wanted Dean to love him and be his brother and be everywhere that Never Dean went. Never looked at it that way. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was really just like, oh, you'll, you'll be, now you love me. And interestingly, a number of their movies were like um, Never Too Young. Is that what it's called? Never Too Young. That was The Major and the Minor, which was made with- Oh, Ginger Rogers. Ginger, uh, Ginger Rogers and Ray Milad. Right, that's right. And they made it as Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Wild. Scared Stiff is really ghost- Buster Ghost Breakers, uh, with which is Bob Hope and and Dean's they split those personalities up. So um, they they were just amazing. And and Jerry, you know his movies. Um, there was always at least ten minutes of genius in it, and sometimes the whole movie was genius. Um, Aaron Boy to me, I think it's an amazing film. Uh, you like that one, Gil? Oh yeah, Aaron Boy. Now Aaron Boy, I what? think is the one where he does chairman of the board. Yes. And and you and you and me and she and but I mean, the time he must have spent with that, he does that, and the typewriter too. Oh yes, typewriter is amazing. You know what's what's funny? Now, if someone watches that movie, they'll go, "What is he doing?" They won't know what a typewriter is. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Now Jerry toured like later on. Like, he, he used to avoid talking about Dean, and then later on when Dean was getting more and more weak, he started to talk about the intense love between them. Do you think there was ever a love between Dean and Jerry? Uh, okay. It's said that Dean once at his... I, I think that... I think there was love within what they were doing. In other words, I think they loved the act. This happened again, George Burns and Gracie Allen. George Burns was, he was struggling to have a toehold in vaudeville. He was 30 Mm -hmm. when he met Gracie Allen. And he fell in love with Gracie Allen. And I always felt that just as much as falling in love with her, he fell in love with the idea that he finally had a great act. And Dean was making it. Dean would have been a good crooner. And Jerry was doing, oddly enough, when we talk about chairman of the board and uh, the lip-syncing to Count Basie Records and Leroy Anderson's The Typewriter, he was doing a lot of lip-sync to, to records. That was his act in the Borscht Belt, playing records and miming to them, mm-hmm. which was considered entertainment. So, yeah, Dick Van Dyke had, had yeah, an act. Yeah, he did do that with he the— just did the same thing. Yeah. And, um, but they found each other, and they started padding the show and just winging it and going out there and ad-libbing 20, 30 minutes— Going out to the audience, and it was a mixture of Olsen and Johnson, basically slapstick, and and I think that they did fall in love with being these two guys that everybody wanted to know. B C, you couldn't get in to see them at the Copa outside the Paramount Theater. But you think that there were crowds for the Beatles, there were crowds for Martin and Lewis then, and I think they fell in love with that. I think that what did happen between them was that Jerry always had a different vision of what he was going to do. And 
Uh, the last film they made, I think Dean, Jerry oversaw the script. And I think Dean did not appear in the movie until about 17 minutes into the film. I see. So the writing was on the wall. <laughs> and and I think that 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 undid the breach. I mean, you know, it was easier to everyone thought I just can remember everyone in the universe thinking poor Dean Martin, what will he do now? They used to have the Martin and Lewis comic book every month, DC Comics put it out, and for about 2 months they tried to put out the Jerry Lewis comic book and the Dean Martin comic book. And no one bought the Dean Martin. I only remember the Jerry one. Yeah, well, yeah. you remember the Jerry. That yeah. kept going. Sure. Along with that laugh riot, the Bob Hope comic book. The Bob Hope. Oh, I, remember them, I remember them both. Bob, Bob, Bob was still floating Bob around out there. Bob dresses up like a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> so when you met him, did you, were you, did you spend enough time with him to tell him to, to, to share how much affection you oh, had? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, to- I, I actually got to really spend time talking with him and joking, you know. And, he, I mean, I have things that uh, – voicemail messages from him that – Oh, you saved them. Of course. Great. Wonderful. Of course. Well, he read this script that I had written of Nutty Professor but so that the guy could sing and so that it would be humane. It's actually a very gentle script about bullying and all like that. And it went over great. We're still working on the negotiations for the rights now. But, but – um, no, when I met him, the first sentence, you know, you say things to people impulsively. And I met him uh, backstage at Damn Yankees when he was running in that. And I looked at him, it was Jerry Lewis. I mean, that, that's Jerry Lewis, you see. And I said, uh, thank you for making life worth living. And he went like, oh, oh, God. It's like, that's why I do this. That's why I do it all like that. We got to talk a lot. And um, uh, it, it was, I just never quite. I would sit there and we'd be chatting about stuff and I'm thinking, I'm talking with, this is Jerry Lewis. Yeah. This is Jerry. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know. Have you had, play, well, you, uh, you yeah. must have had idols that you yeah. are sitting there and you're I, talking. Well, I mean, Jerry Lewis, I met a, a few times and and it was also, it was one of those things where I get very, you know, sarcastic and cynical and particularly Jerry Lewis I'd make fun of with being overly sincere yeah. and the yeah. egotistical yeah. thing. Yeah. The mawkish and, Jerry. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, the great filmmaker, Jerry. You know. The complete filmmaker. But, <laughs> yes. boy, when you were in his presence, you go, I'm here with Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe this. Letterman once turned to him on the show, I remember. He said, you look like a star. You smell like a star. <laughs> That's great. He did. He had this He had this cologne that he discovered in Paris, and he had like 900 bottles of it. It, 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 it isn't, it Did isn't, you know this, Gil? It isn't, no, it's it isn't made. It's kind of blue in color, and it isn't made anywhere, but he stockpiled it, and he was going to be wearing that cologne, and he would come in, and man, the room would be that. And it sounds like it would be a little overwhelming, but it was Jerry Lewis's cologne. I love it. That's what Jerry smells like. That's, you know? that's fantastic. And, uh, and no, it was it was wonderful. He also said, I'm not going to get into this right now, but he said a couple very moving things to me about losses in both our lives. And, oh, that's uh, very nice. And so I got to see um, a Jerry that, that, uh, that, I mean, some of the times that you saw Jerry, it was difficult, you know. I mean, and he, and he got, you always sit there and wonder why. He seemed bitter. And a lot of great stars towards the very, very end, they, they get bitter. And I always think it's because they're, they feel that they've been driven all their lives and, and they're going to pass away like everybody else. I and, suppose. And, and uh, 
So I don't know where that comes from. Well, we talk a lot on this show about the perils of meeting your heroes, but in this case, for you, it was it was rewarding. I, I had a chance to meet John Lennon. I wouldn't. Yeah, you told you told us. Oh, that I did last the, the last time. time. Yeah, yeah. But and the, and Cary Grant. Interesting. Yeah, but you met Groucho and Orson Welles and Frank I Capra. Did, I, 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 Frank Capra and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 Groucho and Orson Welles, who I think I mentioned. This you told, yeah, you mentioned it about yeah. his uh, about his suits, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just glad the Jerry experience because you because you it's a hero worship story. Well, I'm glad it turned out you, well. You've for got you. to understand when Marvin and I started to write this score. Did I? I didn't mention this. I don't think. I'm not sure. We talked. We touched on it briefly. We touched, okay, um, but I had to. I'm not an. I don't do impressions. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I I can perform on a stage and I can talk on a stage, but I don't do an, comedy roles or something. And um, I had to sing the songs that Jerry's character that he created was going to sing. And I suddenly realized I had to do Jerry Lewis for Jerry Lewis, and that was the most terrifying thing I can possibly imagine. <laughs> did I mention this last time? No, I think okay, you did. Okay, so so I'm standing there, and Jerry Lewis is as far away from me as you or or, or Gilbert, and uh, and I'm thinking. He's now going to hear what Professor Kelp, Julius Kelp, sings like, who's never sung in, in the movie, and I've got to do it. And I'm standing there going, ah, Miss Purdy, I believe you will find that uh, one part oxygen, two part. And it was amazing. And at the end of the song, he applauded and he said, Holmes, you're a real ham. And I thought, Jerry Lewis is calling <laughs> me? <laughs> Wowie. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great... What nice. I've always heard, uh, people who I talk to about Jerry Lewis, they say basically it's uh, it is the nutty professor because he was a Jekyll and Hyde. One minute he could be a best friend in the world, and 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 on a in a second he could turn on. Really, I I I did not encounter that. Uh, but he, he was in a very happy circumstance. Here are all these oh, young yeah. people. Yeah. All, all being that world he invented in 1960. Uh, there's a Stella who looks so much like Stella Stevens wow. you can't. Marissa McGowan, wonderful singer and actress, and 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 uh, uh, wonderful looking. And here's a guy who is basically channeling both Buddy Love and and uh, Professor Kelp. And it's kind of and he's directing, and they're all and everyone's. I'm looking at the chorus. And all of them just had this giant oval mouth as he's talking because they're all going, ah, I'm listening to Jerry Lewis. So, <laughs> so he was in his, just in glory. On the yeah. second day, on the second day, he sat down with them and he said, OK. And then he named the first names of every person in the cast. There were 20 people wow. from memory. He had gone home oh. and memorized that. So that was a that meant a lot to them. Wow. Wow. That was a cool thing. Yeah. I, I don't remember names of people I've worked with for 40 years. I mean, <laughs> including mine. Yes. Well, we've only known each other since 93. We, you were, we, you're we, struggling with the name of the show today. Yeah. He was. Yes. <laughs> yes, he was. And now we're going to leave that in. <laughs> okay. While Gilbert tries to remember who our guest is, and what's your name? <laughs> A few words from our sponsor. <laughs> Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. 
Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No, you doesn't have to call me Johnson. My name is Raymond J. Johnson, Jr. Now, you can call me Ray, or you can call me Jay, or you can call me Johnny, or you can call me Sonny, or you can call me Juni, or you can call me Ray J, or you can call me RJ, or you can call me RJJ, or you can call me RJJ Jr. But you doesn't have to call me Johnson. And ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, wonderful, funny, hysterical (laughs) podcast. I love Gilbert and Frank, I love them right or wrong, I love them so much that I'm gonna sing this pretty song. Fuck it, this is enough. And now, sadly, we return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Now, uh, as far as horror... Yeah, is, it's, it's uh, Halloween week, so we should talk horror. Yeah, first. we should talk horror. Absolutely. And now we had Mick Garris on the show, who directed the sh- the TV Shining, and and Psycho Four, and and some other interesting things. But according to Mick Garris, and we have no reason to question him, he said Lon Chaney Jr. had a really big dick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was your takeaway from the yes, Mick Garris interview. Yes. <laughs> only, only after he played Frankenstein. <laughs> it was a, it was a stitch up job. Yeah. yeah, he said, as long as you're sewing me together, can you, yeah, can you uh, throw in a salami for my boy in the army? Well, you know, you're into Bernard Herman. Oh, I am. Very and much so. uh, and uh, Mick brought Mick did Psycho Four, and I guess the Psycho sequels were not using the Bernard Herman music, and he brought it back. Well, that's that's insane for that one to not use the Bernard for two Herman. and three. I don't believe did, and I think yeah. he, he made a, um, he made a point of bringing it. The back. The one that was shot for shot, but in color. That was a, that wasn't him. That was uh, Gus Van Sant. No, no, I know that. Yeah. I'm saying they did. You th- if they were if they were stealing the shots, you'd think they'd steal the score too. Cape Fear, you know, when they did the remake, they used. Oh yes, they yes. used his, his original. Well, score says he's such a purist. Well, you would expect that. Bernard Herman's one of the. You know, great American composers ever. It would be like if you were to do Hard Day's Night, but dub in different songs. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what was interesting about Psycho and that score, the, Herman did something very unusual. Um, you've got to understand that when you hear a um, any kind of good score that's non-synthesized, anything from the golden days of uh, Hollywood and straight through to the present with the true orchestra, uh, you've got strings, so you've got violins, uh, violas, cellos, double basses. And then you've got brass, trumpets, trombones, French horns, and odd instruments. You've got tons of woodwinds. You've got flutes, clarinets, uh, oboes, du- English horns, bassoons, double bassoons, bass clarinet, 
you got a battery of percussion. And that's and all that is color. All that's color. And and so when you have a spring day, you know that the flutes are going to get a workout along with the clarinets and the strings. So Hitchcock had made this was the first Psycho was the first black and white film that that Hitchcock had made in quite some time. I think the prior maybe um, I confess or Wrong Man or one Wrong of Man yeah I, 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 Wrong Man and I confess were both black and white, but he had been doing gorgeous work, you know. Trouble with Harry in the Vermont autumn mm-hmm, and all, mm-hmm. but this was his first black and white film. If I I may have this wrong, but I I believe it was his own production company doing the film. Uh, I don't. He was doing it for a studio, but he, it was out of his pocket, and he also wanted to kind of keep the vibe of the TV show that he had been doing. So this was his first black and white film, and Bernard Herrmann. We all remember how gripping that score is, mm-hmm. and, and the murder scenes. But he decided to write a black and white score. So go back. Next time you hear, um, watch Psycho, you will hear nothing but the string section. There are no woodwinds. There are no brass. There's no other color in the show. Every color in that score is from violins, violas, cellos, double bass. Oh, and that's how he approached it. That's That's, fascinating. to, To try and create a monochromatic score for this monochromatic movie. a story that Brian De Palma was using Bernard Herman for one of his movies. Sisters. Brian De Palma was constantly trying to be Hitchcock. Yeah, he took the word homage to a new level. Oh, my God. (laughs) I remember when I homaged my bank for about $5 million. (laughs) (laughs) And and I heard at one point, Bernard Herman, they were watching the film and... You know, the dailies. And Bernard Herman said, you know, nothing happens in this film in the first uh, half, practically. And and Brian De Palma explained to me, said, well, you know, if you watch Hitchcock's films, it looks like nothing is happening at the beginning. And then later on, everything happens. And Bernard Herman said to him, They'll wait for Hitchcock. They won't wait for you. <laughs> I I remember the, I remember going to see the film. It was Sisters with Margot uh, with Kidder. Margot Kidder, yeah. Kidder, and um and it was such an unreal experience because so devoted to Hitchcock and so devoted to Bernard Herrmann, and so I'm watching this movie, and I'm hearing the Herrmann music, and I'm waiting for the things that happen on screen to be Hitchcockian, and they sort of are a little bit, but. But it was like, it, it, it was, I once, I wrote a, um, 
a Broadway musical called Curtains, and I went to see it in, at the Paper Mill Playhouse after it had ended its Broadway run. They did a completely different production at the Paper Mill Playhouse, and they had gotten all the costumes from the Broadway show. And so the entire cast is wearing all the same costumes I knew from Broadway. And I'm watching the show. The costumes are fine. All the heads are wrong. It's all the wrong faces on the costumes. I'm looking. So it's like the lower two-thirds of the stage looks like my show. The upper third, it looks like the, I've walked into the wrong wow. thing. And it, it, watching Sisters, with uh, the Herman score was just overwhelmed uh, the images on screen. It was also a grainy film. It was... Um, it's one of those ones I think they shot in 16 millimeter, possibly. Or the Cape Fear score is very memorable as well. Oh, it's it really is. It's it incredible. stays with you. But the nice thing there is that Scorsese came up with a good film. Yes. To go with the reuse of the, the, the score. Yes, yes. And he brought back all the actors from the first one. Oh, he great. brought back yeah, yeah. Pack Gregory and, Pack. Uh, yeah, Martin and, Martin Balsam and was back and Mitch. Do you remember yeah. who Everybody. Gregory Peck's wife is in the original? Polly Bergen. Yeah, yeah. And the girl was Laurie Martin. Wow, you're good. Who was on a TV series called National Velvet based on the Elizabeth Taylor. I didn't even know that was a TV series. Yeah, Yeah, it was. You stumped me with That's My Boy when you walked in the door. (laughs) Well, that's because that's before your time. We were talking about Gorshin, uh, too. And since since you brought up... uh, Yeah, he was the mimic. He he invented... Everybody who does Burt Lancaster or Kurt Douglas... Is doing and, an imitation of Frank, and he Bush. had a great Richard Widmark too. Oh yes, yes. he did. Yeah, he and, looked like Richard Widmark. Yeah, he did. And and you and you were talking off mic about him before before we actually turned them on. But you worked with Gorshin in another show you created, Say Goodnight Gracie. Say Goodnight Gracie. He he played and uh, and it was amazing because he would be he would he would channel George Burns. It's about George Burns' life from his youth in the Lower East Side till he was a hundred. And swear to God, first of all, one time I'm outside the theater. And a woman walks out after the show, and she, she says, you know, for 100 years old, he looks really good. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, that's, that's art over reality. And, but it was fascinating to watch Frank Gorshin take the bows at the end of the show because um, he'd, the show would end, he'd walk off, he'd come back on, and he'd be George Burns, and they'd applaud him as George Burns. And then he'd step back out, and he'd come back on. He had changed nothing. But now he was Frank Gorshin. He just let himself, he shed the character oh, of George Burns. Yeah, he didn't like, you know, pull off a wig and rub the makeup off or anything like that. He just came out and took the bow as he would take it, not as George Burns would take it. So and the cool. audience would gasp. They'd go like, oh, that's right. We weren't seeing that guy. And every night he would talk about, uh, he would get to where George won the Academy Award. And he'd say, I was 80 years old. And the audience would applaud. But. That wasn't. That's not the actor, you know. They, what a credit to the actor that the audience is is on some level buying into the fact that they're watching George Burns. Within within seven minutes, he was George Burns. Oh, and and you that. were saying Frank Gorshin was a major smoker. He was a, a, not only that, but he like did bits about loving smoking in his nightclub act. So strange. He actually would come out. I mean, talk about you want to alienate an audience these days. It went before he did say goodnight, Gracie. I went to see him uh, in a nightclub in, in Atlantic City, and he came out and did ten minutes on I love smoking and it's great smoking, smoking in front of him, all like that. And um, and what happens when you smoke like that? Caught up with yeah, him. until he really caught up with him with a vengeance. Yeah. You did a lot of George Burns research, I would imagine. I did. What? I I had the um, I had the total access. It was say goodnight, Gracie was written with the. Uh, 
approval of the George Burns and Gracie Allen estate, Ronnie Burns. Yeah, sure. Who was actually a funny guy sure. on that show. Ronnie he, Burns. Yeah. Remember Ronnie Burns on the Burns and Allen show? Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, he would be funny. He did good takes. And I used to think to myself, um, well, it's in the blood. You know, it's genetic. Look whose parents are. He was adopted. He just was good. Yes, they tried to make him into Ricky that. Nelson. They actually right. got him a they oh, got him yeah. a guitar right. and they tried <laughs> they, they put out a couple of singles and nothing. What what do you no. know about Swain's Rats and Cats? I don't know anything that about it. That was a vaudeville act, oh, an infamous that, vaudeville yes. act that George Burns used to talk about. Oh, well he used to be he was uh, he 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 changed his act every three months himself <laughs> right. because he was he was no good. And a guy would say the owner of the, the, the the owner of the theater would say, didn't I see you here three months ago? He'd say, no, that wasn't me, and I got a new act. <laughs> <laughs> and one time, he, one time, one time he saw that there was an opening, that, that someone said, can you get me, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember this, some, I'm going to say, you know, Frank Lang and his, and his dog. And he said, oh, I'm Frank Lang and his dog. Oh, great. And so what he did is, he went on the uh, alley, he picked up a dog. <laughs> He carried the dog on stage and sang three tunes Fantastic. with the dog in his wow. arm. Fantastic. Great, yeah. Now, I, and to get back to Frank Gorshin. <laughs> We're really delving into horror in a way that yeah. no one has. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got, we got plenty of horror. You, you said Frank Gorshin, yeah. like in in his last days, yeah. he, he, you know, he had cancer and he yeah. was in an oxygen tent. And, and he, then what, what? He would get out of the oxygen tent to get the pack of cigarettes that was still in his pocket, in his jacket pocket that he was hiding there. So he could have a cigarette. Amazing. It's, you know, I got to tell you, uh, I've quit things in my life, but cigarettes, it's murder. I didn't know you were a smoker. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah Barbara tough. Streisand. That'll yeah. do it. Yeah. Well, John Peters, too, right? I was, in, <laughs> when I, I was 28. I hadn't smoked and uh, my whole life. I was like 26 years old. And it, in, that, in those days, in fashionable mansions in Beverly Hills, it was considered very, very elegant and thoughtful to have a little porcelain uh, vase, a small little vase, which would have an assortment of handsome cigarettes in it loose. And you'd have a Sobrani filter, the black with the gold tip. You'd have a um, 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 Eve, I think was the thing. It was, it was not, it was a lady's cigarette, you know. And you'd Marlboro and all like that. And then you have little dainty uh, matches with, a, um, with gold tips. And one day Barbara turns to me and says, Rupert, I want to know, are we going to, should we do this with uh, uh, horns or should we do this just like a piano uh, you've got to have an idea tell me and i said barbara um and i reached for a cigarette i took it i lit it i went and i thought where has this been all my life i've just bought myself 15 seconds to think and i said <laughs> wow and i said I, I said uh yeah no we definitely need big brass and stuff like that and she said oh that's good and i thought i'm not going anywhere without you mr cigarette and within two weeks of the stra- pressure of, of doing an album with Barbara Streisand, not because, just because it was, I was doing a Barbara Streisand album and I had never done something on that scale before, um, up to two packs a day. Incredible. Yeah. I quit and, eventually. And, Good for and you. as far as horror goes, I've heard stories that people who have had like tracheotomies oh, oh. Put the cigarettes in the oh, no. hole in their no. neck and no. smoke it no. out of their neck. No. Yeah, that's how, yeah, that's how addicted they are. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's... back to horror. That well, is a horror, that by is the horror, way. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a horror. You, okay, uh... Lon Chaney Jr. had a big dick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were, we were fine up to then. And then somehow... <laughs> we, 
it seems like at every it seems like at every key juncture, Gil, you have a dick joke in there. Yeah, it's like, it's, that's <laughs> how you know he's he makes his presence felt. Gorshin, by the you way, you should write my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> you understand me. <laughs> What about Gorshin? That he was nominated for an Emmy for Batman. Oh, which was a, yeah. And, we were talking also, about it in the hallway. Was he not also nominated for an amazing episode of Star Trek where he played a half black? Oh, half yes. Wow, that's also yes. very memorable. But you you had something about House of Wax that you emailed me. You said you had a uh, you had a bit of trivia. If you know this already, I'm sorry. James. We may not. Okay, it's just wonderful. To me, it summarizes all of Hollywood, and I know you've we've all had experiences working with Hollywood. So. TV was a big threat to the movie industry in the 50s. And the solution seemed, the, the, the powers that be at the major studios decided the solution was to do things TV couldn't do. And that's why you got Cinerama, that's why you got CinemaScope, widescreen, cast of thousands, opulent color, Vista Vision, Todd AO, 70 mm-hmm. millimeter, all that, all stuff. that stuff. And 3D was going to save the world, having 3D movies. And there were there had been a couple of 3D movies uh, that did well uh, based on the novelty. Uh, Buona Devil. Buona Robert, Devil. Oh, wasn't yes. that the first one? Robert Stack and, and N- yeah. Nigel Bruce. And I heard that with Buona Devil, the director was... No, no, bo- no, 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 no. Bad You've got the wrong You've got the wrong film. Okay. You've got the wrong film. Okay. So, <laughs> I, hopefully you don't know what this is. I don't is. know what this is. He was about to make my entire long story completely pointless. Okay. <laughs> he has a tendency to do no, that. No, I think it was no, pointless no, already. No, no. <laughs> well, well played, sir. Anyway, so, so Warner Brothers decides to do the big, uh, epic 3D movie. And it's going to be... First rate at every level, big budget. So they do House of Wax mm-hmm. with with Vincent Price, with everybody's favorite Frank Lovejoy. Yes, a young Charles Bronson. <laughs> yeah, Charles Charles Buczynski. Phyllis Kirk, mm-hmm. later to do The Thin Man with Peter Lawford on TV, uh, and Carol um, Carolyn Jones. Yes, as the as the it. Joan of Arc, Carolyn Jones, and and my personal one of my favorite actors of all time, Dabs Greer. Oh yeah, I love who, Dabs, Dabs Greer. Greer. He, he you, if you saw him in a show, you'd know him in an love instant. It. Known for westerns, yeah, and yeah. also Perry Mason's. Yeah. He did about he was about eleven murders on Perry Mason. Uh, I did it. Uh, so um, so they do this, and it's going to be big Technicolor and a big budget and all like that, and fabulous sets. And they decide to hire a really good action director named Andre Dutoff, who was known for, you know, war movies and westerns, a really good, he'll turn out a good movie. There was only one unusual thing about Andre Dutoff, which is he only had one eye. <laughs> <laughs> you knew this, Gilbert. Yeah, yes. Oh, but you had good. the wrong movie. And, and <laughs> you in, thought it was Buona Devil. Yeah. In 3D. Yeah. You have to have two eyes because it's tricking your eyes. Andre, uh, we've cut the glasses for you. Do you want the red or the green? How's it looking from over there, Andre? Now, how do you do that? How do you hire? Why do you put it? This new process that requires two eyes. You know, they could have hired, you know, 
Right. Anyway. Well, didn't Fritz Lang have one eye? Or, or uh, yeah, but they or... didn't tell him to do a three D movie. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. It's like that's that sketch that Dudley Moore and, and Peter Cook yes. used to do about the one legged Tarzan. No, yeah. uh, uh, the one legged oh, yeah, Tarzan. Oh, the Cook and Moore sketch. Yeah. Right, of, right. All the, of all the t- of all the one legged Tarzans, you're at the very top of our list. Right. Sir. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you've got 3D, it all over a Tarzan 3D. with no legs. In three D, it's basically tricking both your eyes. Absolutely, absolutely. And so with one eye, he never at the rushes he got no rush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you are also, and this came up briefly last time, you're a fan of the of the Hammerfick uh, pictures. I am, which, I very much, but Gil, I think Gilbert is Gil not. doesn't care about them Yeah, I never got into the Hammer yeah. ones. Yeah. I think I, uh, first of all, I'm kind of a, I, I'm a, I love horror films, but I also love a period. I love the things that are said in period because you mm-hmm. go to another world. Mm-hmm. I love atmosphere. I love uh, things British. Obviously, Mystery of Edwin Drew. Of course. Other things that I've written are set in England. And I loved the the basic team that that was created and which continued for years of uh, Peter Cushing and uh, Christopher Lee. Yeah. And in uh, uh, Horror of Frankenstein, Peter Cushing is Victor Frankenstein. Christopher Lee's the monster. In Dracula, Peter Cushing is von uh, von Helsing, and Christopher Lee is uh, Dracula. And it continued like that. There was always a role for there was a uh, even in Hound of the Baskervilles, um, Peter Cushing was Sherlock Holmes, and uh, P- uh, Christopher Lee was uh, Henry Baskerville. Right. He wasn't Watson. Um, so I loved that, and I also loved the fact that they went and they bought themselves a little manor in I think I think, I think it was called Bray Studios. I don't know where it was. It was outside of London. And that manor is in every the first fifteen movies. That's the castle, mm-hmm. Baskerville Hall, and they just find different ways to dress it, and it looks real and authentic. And they just filmed everything in that one little kind of building, and used the forest outside of the the manor uh, was you know you were either in Germany or Bavaria or stuff. So I really liked the films. All the acting was terrific because it was all great British acting. Of course, of course. And, um, and uh, you look at the, some of the films that were made, Judy Dench crops up in them, uh, you know, like age 23. So um, I, I, I really loved them. They were classy when horror movies were, when I, this is concurrent with movies like um, I, was a, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, uh, low-budget Roger Corman-type uh, productions, which I later came to really appreciate. But uh, I knew that horror movies were always kind of schlocky and cheap, and here was these, these opulent— Yeah, they're sumptuous. Uh, yeah, they really are in now, color. Yeah. I heard with Christopher Lee, he was so egotistical about the toupee he wore, he would never take it off— even when they were making him up as the mummy or Frankenstein, <laughs> or the where they'd have the to slop makeup all over his head, he'd keep the toupee on. I had, um, I did a show with Stacey Keach called Solitary Confinement, and the makeup man on that show, who also did hair, told me that Charlton Heston, that he did the, <laughs> he did the wigs for for a movie. Uh, what was it called? It's it was a Chinese, the Warlords or something. I think it may have been called the Warlords. Okay. And Charlton Heston was playing a Chinese warlord, and he had to be bald. And he said <laughs> that he said, you know, you're good casting. You're gonna. Ha- he said you're gonna have to. He said Charlton Heston was known throughout Hollywood for owning the cheapest toupees that you could get. <laughs> and and he said, you know, Mr. Heston, uh, you're going to be bald in this. And he's kind of just trying to nuance it gently into the conversation. And he said, yes, I know you're going to have to make a bald wig. And the guy made a bald wig, and he came in to put it on Heston. And he said, so we'll just, you'll, re- you'll remove, you'll remove the, uh, what? 
you'll remove what you he wouldn't take off his toupee to put the ball. He not only made them make a bald wig when he could have been bald. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, they, but in, if, just like your story, the, the bald wig went over the toupee. And he acted with the toupee underneath the bald wig. Swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> so Christopher Lee wouldn't take the toupee off. No. And Charlton Heston wouldn't take the toupee no, off. exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. Why don't you like the Hammer Pictures, Gil? I don't know. I just never quite. I. I because you're because you're a Universal classic yeah, purist. Yeah, fell in love with the Universal ones. Yeah, even got a love for the monogram ones mm-hmm. once I realized they were low budget schlock, but they I, were. I fun. never saw a scene in a monogram movie that didn't take place in an office with a file cabinet. <laughs> 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 Charlie Chan's in there. You know, later they they took over the franchise from 20th Century Fox, Roland Winters, and it's all it's all offices with filing cabinets. It's just I don't know. It's, <laughs> you guys were talking Chan in the hallway before we yeah, uh, yeah. before we started. Never been played by an Asian uh, by a Chinese actor. Ridiculous. Ever. He was played by Warner Olin first for a, sure. and he Olin was brilliant, and uh, he was found eventually wandering the streets of L.A. He was a, a severe alcoholic. But he he had he was intoxicated apparently most of the time he played the role and it worked perfectly because he always seemed to be speaking a second language. <laughs> it was he go, he go, a noble horse find answer to true killer, and you'd say it sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> Sidney Toller was the second. Sidney Toller was the second, and yeah. then the third was uh, and that was sad. Sidney Toller played him for 20th Century Fox, and the films were pretty good. Sidney Toller was not. To me, Warner Oland. But then it ran out, so Sidney Toller bought the rights and then made his own, continued playing Charlie Chan at Monogram. And then Roland Winters came wow. in for the last six. Um, you know. Someone told me absurd. that. And and if it's true, it And J. Makes... Carol Nash, by the way, played him on TV. Oh, The New wow. Adventures of Charlie Chan. Irishman J. Carol Nash. And someone told me, and it would make perfect sense if it was true, that the Charlie Chan movies got a very big Chinese following. For real. Because, you know, now you look at it, look how offensive, but then you go, he's this brilliant Chinese guy right, right. solving crime. Yep. You know, why wouldn't they? They tried to do a spinoff for TV and they used Ross Martin. Oh, as Charlie yes. Chan. They made it, uh, it was like a 90 minute, you know, yes. it looked like sort of Charlie Chan had wandered How into the bizarre. Brady Bunch, you know. He had number one son was cute and touring with the Partridge family or something. I remember Sellers sent, sending him up in Murder uh, by Murder Death. Murder by Death too. was yeah. great. Sidney Wang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, I guess so. Something weird about saying, well, he's a brilliant hero and he's being presented as an Asian, except he's being played by a Swedish guy. So I'm seeing my people now. You know, those are my... Well, well, Karloff. They had Karloff playing an Asian detective in a oh, yeah, series. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Wong. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Wong. Mr. Wong. Mr. Wong. Mr. Wong. Yeah. 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 Um, they... Anything but hire an Asian actor I <laughs> to play these roles. I Bela Lugosi in Asian makeup. Really? Yeah. That sounds familiar. Was he familiar. in a serial? Was that a serial? It might have been a serial. It was some serial yeah. where he was I like think a... Captain Crunch. <laughs> 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 that sounds familiar. Uh, you're also a fan of the old of the old what you call the old dark house films. Yeah, yeah, which is like the the Bob Hope pictures, the skeleton pictures. Yeah, my favorite. With, there's my favorite sentence 
in any movie, there's certain things that I know automatically I'm going to have a good time. Uh-huh. Like if I'm going to see a, a stage comedy, if when the curtain goes up, I see nine doors, I'm in for a great evening. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, and if there's a dumb waiter, right, noise is off. Be, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, yeah. I, I see. So they're going to go in there. They're going to come around here. Oh, there's a there's a Murphy bed that's going to come down. Oh so yes, yes. And there's the dumb waiter, and he's going to escape through there. Okay. So I'm. This is prime entertainment for me. So my favorite sentence to hear in a movie is, um, um, "I'm afraid the bridge is washed out. We'll have to stay the night." <laughs> <laughs> the second I see that bridge collapse, That's great. I'm saying, yeah, there's one with Kay Kaiser, who's like the Lawrence Welk of the big band era, called You'll Find oh, Out. Oh, You'll Find Out, sure. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah with sure. Lugosi, yeah. And Laurie, and all of them. Yeah, yeah, right. They're all in it. Yeah, and they had that device where you could hold a mic to your neck, and it would make the voices sing, hello, yeah. Rusty, like that. Uh, you're looking at me completely blank. You'll take my word for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember. I remember, I remember hearing those yeah. voices. So when the bridge washes out in that movie, I'm saying, oh, Kay Kaiser and Lugosi and, what and, could, and what Peter Lorre, what could go? <laughs> if you remember uh, a real what the fuck ending, Kay Kaiser comes out at the end and he goes, uh, Bela Lugosi, Boris Koloff, and Peter Lorre aren't villains. They're just three nice guys. <laughs> <laughs> they broke the fourth Com- wall. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Completely undercut. For no reason. Completely undercut. <laughs> the College of Musical Knowledge, right? Kate Kaiser. Kate Kaiser, that's right, you were wrong. Yeah. That was his catchphrase. That's right. What were the, what were the host ones, uh, the, the Hope ones? There was Ghost, Ghost Breakers. Oh, two, two of the greatest films ever made. Ghost Breakers with, um, with Willie Best playing his butler. Willie Best. And yes. the wonderful Paulette Goddard oh, being the love oh, interest. Mrs. And, Chaplin. And Anthony Quinn uh, in that in like 1939. Oh, yikes. Play, uh, and they're going to Cuba. Cuba, the island of Cuba where the, there's the castle. I forget the name of it just for the moment. Terrific, terrific film. And followed hard upon by The Cat, Cat and the Canary, the Canary. Yep. Which, was, which was, again, Paulette Goddard. Right. And uh, and uh, it's, uh, if it's not, I'm sorry the bridge is washed out, you'll have to stay the night, it's um, we'll assemble to read the will. Oh, right. yes. <laughs> During the storm. <laughs> right. He's left it to the last one who served, you know, this great stuff. I, I remember, I think it's Ghostbreakers, where he's walk. Bob Hope is walking with Willie Best through the garden and they see this woman in a long gown, like a zombie-looking yeah, woman, yeah. walk past. And and Bob Hope says to Willie Bess, he goes, well, she's, she's just trying to scare us. And Willie Bess goes, well, she's wasting her time because we scared already. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to tell you what Willie Best's stage name was before Willie Best. Okay, go ahead. Because there was an actor you'll know who had... I, I, this is all historic. This is not me <laughs> getting a laugh. Okay? There was an actor who, for his whole career, his name was Stepan Fetchett. Sure. Yes. Step and Fetchett. Yeah. Willie Best's name, before he used his name, was Eaton Sleep. <laughs> Eaton Sleep. Wow. Eaton Sleep. Incredible. That's the Hollywood we had. Incredible. Yeah. And Willie Best, by the way, was... Brilliant. He was. He made any film. Did you know that Milton Berle did an old dark house movie called Whispering Ghosts? 
Do you know that one, Gil? No. With Willie Best as as his sidekick. And and, uh, Red Skelton did three. Whistling in in the Dark. Yeah, I know that Whistling in Dixie and Whistling in Brooklyn. The three whistling movies. (laughs) Abin Costello did a great radio one. Uh, Not Hold That Ghost, the other one. Um, Uh, uh, The radio uh, one. I'm uh, blank now. uh, Hold That Ghost. Hold That Ghost. I'll I'll think of it in a moment. Did they make it into a feature? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hit the ice. No, not, not hit, hit the, the ice. ice. What's the one with Joan Date? Um, a, a, a haunted house picture. Yeah, yeah. It's there was. There's hold that ghost and um, he did. Uh, he did. What's ho- the one with the money's in the moose's head? That's it. That's the moose, one. Yeah, but moose the, Matson. Oh, oh, Chuck is in that yeah, one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll think of it in a second. Um, but uh, yeah, what about oh, a movie like Murder? He says with Fred Fred McMurray, oh, which I Fred, love. Marjorie Marjorie Maine. Marjorie Maine and yeah. Porter Hall. Yeah, would you call that a, the, a an old dark house movie? Oh, absolutely. It just yeah. happens to be hillbillies who are right. glowing, who are <laughs> glowing spooky, in the dark. But it's yeah. spooky. And by the way, it, well, it has that. Great, it had the clue, the big clue in Murder. You see. I love that movie. The, I, I love it, too. Yeah. And it's been very hard to find. It, it is hard printed. to find. I talked to Robert I've, Osborne I've got, about yeah. it. They run it sometimes. Um, the big clue in it is um, there's a, a girl who's touched in the head, just a little touched in the head. Yes. And she goes around singing, on horse flies in combe That's it. And that's the clue. And they actually met a reference. They're at an organ in this hillbilly home. And they say, I saw in Ghost Breakers where playing the notes... Um, caused a door to open. Correct. And so they try to replicate it. So they're referencing their own Paramount picture from about four years earlier. The thing I love is when when, Bo- when Bob Hope is in Ghostbreakers, he's on the deck of the ship with um, uh, Paulette Goddard, and they're looking out over uh, San Juan Harbor in Cuba, and a tugboat goes by, and it's all very nice, and you see, this, you see the castle and all like that. And now Scared Stiff is made some 25, uh, 15 years later, and Dean Martin's out on deck with Elizabeth Scott. I was just going to ask you about Scared Stiff. It's funny. It's, it's a remake. Yeah. And, yeah. and they split up the character. They gave, they dealt, we were talking earlier about it. They gave some of the Willie Best material to Jerry. They made, took some of the Dean, uh, some of the Bob Hope material to Jerry. They let, where Bob's, you know, Bob was the only guy, Bob Hope was, could play a leading man and a coward in the same movie. He could be sort of suave and debonair and when it came down to it he'd do what's right but also be completely cowardly so they were able to take that split personality and deal it partly to Dean Martin partly to Jerry Lewis adding the Willie Best stuff but they're standing on the deck and I'm looking and they're looking at and the same piece of film that was in Ghostbreakers of San Juan Harbor with the tugboat going by mm-hmm. in the castle they just went to the library and hauled it up it was a black and white movie and used it recycled who's gonna know yeah exactly I it, it always I've, I've spoken about this before with Bob Hope in his later movies, right. in the movies, he became that awful Bob Hope reading the cue cards guy like that. Yeah. And, you know, he would stand. There was even one with Bing Crosby where Bob Hope would stand there like that and he's doing that kind of <laughs> delivery looking at the words on the They shouldn't have. I mean, they shouldn't have been. Forget they shouldn't have been shown. At that point, I mean, they really should have hung up that. But but Bob Hope, he the Bob Hope, too long. It, that's it, you know, that's yeah. it's it's it was when they would and his writers were all as old as he was. Yes, yes. of course. The so of they're course. saying we're going to get Bob in a hippie outfit. Oh yes, <laughs> and Anne Margaret's going to come in and he'll say something about if I had strings like that on my guitar, you know, or something. And and, and it would be like men completely out of touch with any thirty years I, out of sync. With, I I would watch that where they'd have, you know, Bob Hope and Lucille Ball 
either as hippies or rock stars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With beetle wigs. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. And you go, oh, my God, they have no idea they just don't what know. they're writing they don't about. Know. Yeah, they're yeah. going to be called the grasshoppers. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, that was that. Michael, Michael McKeon said that the ultimate oxymoron is Bob Hope special. That's, That's a great line. That's a great line. Well, sitcoms were doing it then. When, during Beatlemania, every sitcom had a oh, band. Dick was, Van Dyke Show, right? Which, had, which otherwise was one of the best written shows that will ever be on television. And brilliant, right? But they had Chad and Jeremy Chad and on Jeremy once. Show, Chad and Jeremy showed up on uh, on Batman. Did they? Yes. It, it would always be like, well, the so-and-sos are in town. The so-and-sos. The mosquitoes showed up on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they can't pl- stay at a regular hotel. They'll have to stay with you. And the Standells took that to a state in the Munsters' house. They stayed with the Munsters. You'll notice that when they're, whenever... Whenever in those shows they have the, the standells or whoever playing their solid body guitars, there are no guitar chords. They're never, they're, they're never plugged into anything. They're just strumming them like, like it's acoustic. You know? What I remember was Al Lewis with the steam coming out of his ears. <laughs> oh, yeah. While the standells are covering I Want to Hold Your Hand on the Munsters, which is very strange. And, and one thing that has nothing to do with it, but it also shows a weird thing, was in, in the Partridge family— when Danny Partridge makes friends with the Black Panthers. Yeah, that's, yes. that was strange, too. That was, yeah, with was, Richard, was Richard Pryor in that episode? Richard, yeah, Pryor yeah. was in that. Yeah. And you wrote a Partridge Family hit. I wrote a Partridge hit. Family hit, and, it was, and I loved it because it was Kay Medford who had played uh, oh, on sure, Broadway. She was course. really well-known, ah. and she was playing like a, 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 a Jewish mother to the Partridge family. She was going to watch out for them, be the sort of the nanny. And she keeps ruining a recording session. So they'd say, Echo Valley 2, 6801, take one. And they'd start and play the intro, we grew up together. And she'd be doing something, that's not right, he doesn't have that, fix his hat. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, okay, Echo Valley 2, 6801, take two. And they just plugged the name of the tune continually through the show. I was very grateful to her. We remember her from the Dean Martin show. Absolutely. Kay Medford and Lou Jacoby. Now, who booked that? I mean, I, 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 no, what I'm saying is that was an odd booking for yes. the Dean Martin show. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's yeah. get Lou Jacoby and Kay Medford yeah, to be a nice old Jewish couple while the gold diggers and and, yeah. and, and Sean Biner. <laughs> wasn't Nipsey <laughs> cutting his hair? Didn't they have Nipsey Russell as a recurring barber oh my God. on the Dean Martin show? Well, Bless they... your heart for writing that Partridge Family song, by the way. One of my favorites. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And you also work with Will Jordan, which we were going to bring up last time because we had Will in here. Uh-huh. And he's on one of your first records. Uh, on my first album. I thought that or a, in 1974, what a, a really good idea for a singer-songwriter trying to make a name for himself and trying to express the, the depth of his soul and, and the sensitivity of, his, of, his, of all his feelings and his life experience, that it would be good to end the record with a 10-minute radio show. And um, It's very ambitious. I, well, I just, I just I, I didn't know if they'd ever – I had this contract to make this first album. And it was called widescreen. And every I knew that this might be the only album I ever made. This is like five albums before Escape the Pina Colada song. And so I tried to make every cut something intent. And so the instrumentation from on every cut is different. And I did a song about a saxophone player in 1940 who never gets to take a solo. And I reassembled the Glenn Miller Orchestra and wrote a chart for using all the old big band themes. And then did a – I was using sound effects. On one song um, – 
I had Allison Platon come in and do dialogue oh, sure. with me oh, as we're sure. doing. Yeah, we, I would, I, it was a song about a guy who tries to pick up a girl while taking her to a Mets baseball game, and when they play the Star Spangled Banner, yes. he starts singing, Won't You Come Home With Me? I have a room you should see with a warm water bed and a pillow for your head. And then I thought when we get to the instrumental section, no, no sax solo. Let's just have these two people talk. And Alice, uh, Alice Platon came in, and what kind of wine is this? Oh, that's, uh, that's red wine. And um, uh, so I ended the sh- I ended the entire album with a basically a, a, a it wasn't a spoof it wasn't a comedy thing I just tried to emulate uh, the Sam Spade detective show that Howard Duff did in the fifties. Now, what commercial was Alice Platon in? She was the uh, um, Alka Seltzer stuffed dumplings. Yes, that's it. That's her. The, the 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 honeymoon couple. And she's cooked the first meal, and oh. he, he doesn't want her to hear that he's having to she put— She was a lampoon person. She was indeed. Yeah, she Alice did a great Clayton. Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she was, was on Lemmings or one of those was, things. She was in Lemmings yeah. with Chevy Chase yeah. and, and uh, yeah. John Belushi. Uh, she was really great, and she did a musical on Broadway called Henry Sweet Henry. and um, Really talented, really funny, not with us anymore, and missed. And, um, and so I decided that at the end of this thing, I would do this kind of show that I don't always have to sing a song. Maybe I'll do— Something with music. I had a huge orchestra underscoring the, the dialogue. And we did a, a kind of a Sam Spade detective, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart uh, kind of thing. And I assembled Will Jordan to play Peter Lorre. <laughs> he played a character named Carl Suez. Yep. Wow. He's very good. And uh, and uh, Thayer David. Thayer David. Oh, my God. Remember him? Who, yeah, Dark Shadows. Dark sure. Shadows. Right. I had him being uh, Sidney Greenstreet. Basically, oh, yeah, you know, perfect. Oh, Gasser, you are a character. Yeah. And Allison Steele was oh, Lauren the night, Bacall, the Nightbird night on WNEF. Oh, WNF. wow. So oh, she right. had that. Perfect. You got to listen to it, Gil. You'll love it. Yeah. She stormed off, leaving the heavy perfume of lavender permeating the fog around me. I was alone. On the contrary, sir, you are far from being alone. My name is Grossman, sir, and I wish to talk to you about a certain wax figurine of the Kaiser. Now that we are alone... Oh, on the contrary, gentlemen, you are far from being alone. What's all this? Ah, my old companion from Istanbul. We meet again, Mr. G, and I believe for the same purpose. I hate to interrupt a reunion, but... Oh, forgive me, Mr. Holmes. Uh, uh, My name is Carl Suez, and I've been representing a competitive bidder for the legendary Kaiser statuette. (laughs) Well, then let's... uh... Let's talk about the statue. <laughs> Gad, sir, you are a character. Well, then, by all means, let's talk about the statue. And, oh, by the way, the announcer for the radio show was Ed Hurley. Fantastic. You know, so, so, uh, Ed Hurley, yeah. little old me. Some, someone told me that Thayer David, when he was doing Dark Shadows, and, and they brought it up to him. They said sometimes in scenes we would see you turn your head away from the camera, and he said he thought the show was so fucking stupid. <laughs> it was Sometimes he'd start cracking up, oh, and oh. he would have to turn his face away from the camera in the middle Will of Will Jordan scene. was here, sitting in, was that he? ch- was sitting in that chair. He's, he's also in the opening of, uh, of uh, Broadway, Broadway Danny, Danny Rose. Broadway Danny Rose, and, yeah, he was and here. He couldn't get him to do impressions. Well, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the point that you were making, though, Gil, is, is really interesting, which is that it takes one impressionist to crack yes. a character, and then once that person gets it, then everybody does an impression of them. In other words, uh, I don't think anyone was doing—no one could do Carson. 
People wanted to do Carson, and they couldn't do it. And I can't remember if Rich Little finally cracked it or whether it was, I think it may have been John Biner who cracked it, and then Rich they Little did it. took it from him. They both did it. Uh, but, but uh, uh, yeah, I, so Will Jordan, there was no, what, what Will Jordan told me, I don't know if he's ever said that to you, is that, that Ed Sullivan started acting like his impression. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. He did tell us. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there I am in the studio, and he's saying he's a cool guy, by the way. Yeah, sunglasses. We love him. We love yeah, him. Great yeah. here. He was. He lives a couple funny. of blocks from here. Really? Yeah. And uh, and until there was no such thing as an Ed Sullivan impression, and then this man came out and did this thing. Right. Right. And and Sullivan went with it. You know, it do, was, a little, do a little of your Sydney Green Street for Rupert. He'll love it. Oh. <laughs> I enjoy talking to a man who enjoys to talk. I distrust closed mouth men. They usually are hiding something. <laughs> you are a character, sir. <laughs> that is, that's fucking great. And in Casablanca, he says, uh, well, right now it would take a miracle to get out of Casablanca, and the Germans have outlawed miracles. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's so great. I love him in Across the Pacific, too. I love him. Oh, film. yeah. That's, if you've just seen Maltese Falcon... And uh, and you, I'm saying this to your listeners as a public service. Go ahead. If you've just seen Maltese Falcon and you wish to God there was more, uh, the film they made right after it is called uh, Across the Pacific, and it's got almost the same cast. Yeah, yeah. it's got Mary Astor as uh, who's being described as the girl you wrote home to mother about or something like that, which is she's a little too old for that, but but she's wonderful in it, and um, and there's a guy being being the stand-in for Peter Lorre. Uh, Playing like Yokohama Joe, yeah. and there's a guy named Sam. His name is Rick. Oh, in wow! The Interesting. Humphrey Bogart's name is Rick, and he, they need ice water. Bring ice water. And the guy who wrote can do, can do. There's a guy, and he's Asian, and his name is Sam. So you had Rick and Sam talking back and forth to each other before Casablanca was ever made. And and I heard when Casablanca came out, Dooley Wilson, everyone wanted to hire him, and. They would hire him for clubs and appearances, and Dooley Wilson would say, oh, well, can I talk to the piano player? And they'd say, well, we thought you played the piano. Yeah. And he couldn't. He, couldn't. he sang, but he yeah. couldn't play the yeah, piano. Yeah, it's amazing. People just make that assumption. We could go so many places with you, Rupert. You're such a fun guest to talk to. You should. Mm. <laughs> also in, in Maltese Falcon. Where could we go? No, it was you. You who ruined it. Kevin to found out how valuable it was. <laughs> he, he's got those voices down, he, doesn't he? He really does. I love when he says something like, I wish the. When Laurie says something about, I wish the story you had invented had been a little bit easier. It was hard to. These, they've obviously been beaten. In the police at police headquarters after that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great and, movie. And there's my one line that kills me and <laughs> that Laurie does, and I don't know why. It's not like really a joke line. But, uh, you know, in the middle of Hump, Bogard and Astor and everybody changing their stories yeah. around in front of the cops, and then Peter Laurie has on his overcoat and he picks up his cane, he's walking away. And one of the cops goes, where do you think you're going? And he goes, I'm not going anywhere. It's getting quite late. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't 
does he scoop up some change at yeah. some point? <laughs> it's wonderful. It's, it's and you know, it, that's an amazing movie because so little happens outside of a bunch of rooms. And yes, true. and there are like Laurie, a first. Bogart gets a business card from Laurie that he sniffs like it's perfume. Yes, that's right. And then, shoo him in, shoo him in. Yeah, and then Laurie is like rubbing the cane against his mouth, you know. And it was like they're they're going as far as they can go to say I, he was gay. Yeah, and uh, and I believe in the novel, Wilmer is definitely uh, like a trick of uh, a, a personal possession of Gutman. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Things they couldn't do. Yeah. At that point. And and one line in in Maltese Falcon that I thought if if I made the commercial for Maltese Falcon, it would have just been this line. And that's like Sidney Greenstreet. He's going to uh oh, he says uh, you know, oh Oh, oh, he's going to turn in Wilma, you know, uh, the, uh, um, Elijah, Elijah Cook. Cook. Yeah, he's going to turn in Wilma. And he goes, yes, I love Wilma like he's my own son. But if you lose a son, it's possible to get another one. But there's only one Maltese Falcon. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that that's could the, have been that's the, the campaign. Powerful. Right there. Let me throw before we. It wasn't bad enough that he was Elisha Cook. He had to be Elisha Cook Jr. Junior. Yes, and, so he, and he has the tagline in House on Haunted Hill, doesn't he? Believe he does. Ooh. He turns to the camera and says, "And then they'll be coming for you." I oh yes. yes, at the end, right? Yes, yes. yes. I gets... love him in Kubrick's The Killing. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was a good actor. Yeah, very good. He and... did the Jerry Lewis show once uh, when Jerry Lewis had a Saturday night. Show that was going to be the big, big show. It's like a two-hour. Well, we've talked oh, about it here. One... When they put the tiles, his face no on the tiles. With no script involved. Yeah. <laughs> and they, 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 they came then, and he said to him, "What are you playing?" And Elisha Cook Jr. was a guest on the show. I remember this now. It's I haven't thought. He said, "What are you playing?" He said, "Oh, like always a pimp." And was, no one had ever said the word pimp on TV before. It was really cool. I'm going to give you guys a wild card here. As I said, we could ask Rupert almost anything. He's that kind of guest. Do you want to talk about Ray Harryhausen movies or obscure Karloff pictures from the 30s and 40s? Oh, both are fascinating. Yeah. Because um, you, uh, uh, I wrote down a couple of Karloff pictures. Well, there we already channeled one, which was when he played uh, Mr. Wong, detective. Mr. Wong, but yeah. what which about? Was part of the, go ahead, please. No, uh, the man they could not hang from 1939. Yeah, Does these mean anything they, to you? Yeah, these I've never seen. When I was a kid, that was one of those movies that would be showing pretty much constantly. I, I think it's like they tried to kill him, but he lived through it, and then he held the entire jury hostage, and he was going to kill all of them. Strangely, there's three. There's there's uh, The Man They Could Not Hang in 39, and in 1940, there's Before I Hang with Edward Van Sloan. Right. Wow. And The Man With Nine Lives, and it sounds like they were all of a, yeah, they, of you a know, theme. Yeah, they, they, there's, you know, uh, shock theater. You probably don't even uh, well. You must know, know Zach- what it is. You know we Zachary. had Zachary here. You know yeah. Zach- yeah. You've had yeah. Zachary, yeah. and they had a package that they released. Universal sold like fifty-five films to TV, and they were always all billed as um, horror movies. But a lot of them were really borderline uh, films about you know executions gone wrong, and so the gangsters get the body and they bring him back and all like that. 
I don't think I've ever seen those three. Interesting. I, I, there, there's a bunch. And in the universal world, there's also like some inner sanctum mysteries with Lon Chaney. Yeah. Who had a big dick. <laughs> yes. We established oh, that. Yes. For those of you tuning in. <laughs> Just updating you, updating you on this important news brief. <laughs> those those Inner Sanctum movies were horrible. They were really bad. Yeah. They were yeah. really bad. But uh, Karloff did, uh, what was it? There was one, oh, damn, it's escaped me now. In, in one I, of the- I, I happen to love the black cat. I love the yeah, black cat. Yeah, we talked cat. about oh, the black, black cat. The black cat, cat is just, great. it's yeah. kinky. It, it's it's very kinky. It is. I, it's a wild all movie. All kinds of things. To going our listeners on. who don't know it, please watch the Black Cat. It's thing. like it's the whole movie was done in a dream state. Yeah. It's bizarro. Yeah, it is. Not, the story makes no no sense, sense whatsoever. Uh, the sets themselves. There's like one scene where the door slides open, the other scene where the door comes yeah. out. Yeah, and it. it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's you can't so stop fascinating it. to watch. You can't take your eyes there, off it. There are some Carla films that I, I never hear anyone talking about that I were terrific at the very end of the 40s. There was one called The Strange Door. I don't have that on my list. And and another called The Black Castle. I think he was in that. Black Castle. Uh, but Strange Door is really did interesting. The black, did, did the Black Castle have Janie also... I, you know, I can't tell you. I know it had Richard Green in a, a Richard. It's, the movie starts. It's almost like Sunset Boulevard. The movie starts with Richard Green in a state of paralysis, and he he says, "Why are you all thinking I'm dead? I'm not." It's a, a period piece, by the way. Oh, but uh, it's it's really good stuff. Did you ever see um, uh, him in uh, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper on Thriller? No, he did no. an a, a Thriller. Was did you, do you know Thriller? At all? I know some Thriller oh, yeah. episodes. There's a fabulous William Shatner. There's a William Shatner episode where the beginning of the overacting and stopping at random moments is it's <laughs> he's gotta, laying the groundwork for the gotta the find it. And, yeah. yeah, and Karloff would always do the speech at the beginning. It was great. And go, and this one's bound to be a thriller. It was great. What about he had, he had a TV series called Inspector March of Scotland Yard, filmed in England. What about Tower of London with him and Rathbone? That's very oh, early. Yeah. And Vincent yeah. Price. 39. Vincent Price is in that movie. Yes, too. he is. He plays the Duke of Clarence. Yeah. The Devil Commands. The, 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 you know this one? No. Edward Dimitrick directed it, one of the Hollywood Ten. Uh, Invisible Ray with Lagos. Invisible. Oh, yep. yes. Yeah, that's that, a good one. That was. Um, I remember they were destroying these statues on a building. When they kill a person, they'd. Uh, and I think the Invisible Ray later got remade into that Cheney one that was like where he's Dynamite Dan, yeah. the electric man, where he's. They light him up. What happened to me was as a boy, mm-hmm. I was not. A, these were all these films were in this package. On on shock theater, mm-hmm. and they're all universal, but a lot of them are like, they're not they're not C films in terms of the effort that went into them, sure. but they're they're really just you know like heist movies and stuff. Yes, uh, and what happened? I was not allowed to watch shock theater because it was both bad and it was too late. And uh, you know, I was twenty four at the time. But uh, no. <laughs> is this in Jersey? <laughs> no, this is when I was growing up in Nanuet, New York. Okay, and I was not allowed to watch the show. But I would read the blurb in TV Guide. You know, a man uh, frees uh, the frozen ghost. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, yes. Yeah. And I'd read the blurb. A man creates suspended animation with his friends and then performs scientific experiments. The movie that I would make up in my mind 
while I was not watching shock theater, was so terrifying to me. I was terrified of the movies that I spun out of the That's TV great. guide synopsis. That's great. If I had seen the movie, it wouldn't have scared me at all. What about Black Room, where he played twin brothers? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. 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 I haven't seen any of these. I that's really period. have to go Black on a, Room's car, period. a, a it's, that's, it's, that's one with he's got ruffles at his wrists and all. And yeah. I, oh, getting back to Black Cat for a minute, I remember this one line <laughs> where a suitcase, they're all on a train together and a suitcase falls and the girl screams because it almost hits her. And Lugosi catches it, and she goes, oh, I was so frightened. And Lugosi goes, it is better to be frightened than crushed. <laughs> Isn't that the one where the guy says it's just a bunch of supernatural baloney and, and Lugosi? Oh, yes. A- supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps <laughs> not. That's the one. <laughs> Gold. <laughs> now, now help, me, gold. help me. Help me with this one. Let's get. To, so you've got Ghost of Frankenstein, which is Igor. That Gilbert uh, loves that one. Bella Lugosi is Igor. We yeah. we had on. I was demanding she do the show. Janet and Gal. We had the little girl. Who was the That's little girl? The show. I'll send yeah. it to you. I'll That's send you the wonderful. Link. Yeah. Okay. So there are two things about 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 Lugosi and Frank and those Frankenstein world. I haven't seen it in centuries, but help me. In Ghost of Frankenstein, was there not the implication that Igor's brain was tr- put into the body of the Frankenstein monster? Uh, that it is, it does happen in Ghost. Okay. Yes. In was I think that they tried. Maybe I've got. I think they tried having the Frankenstein monster speak with a Hungarian accent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the next movie, because at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, Cheney's the monster. And Igor's brain is put into right. uh, Cheney's head. And uh, and then he goes blind because it's not the same blood type. And then so for Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Wolf it was supposed to be that the monster is still blind, and but he's able to speak like they were continuing that. Isn't he frozen at the beginning? Yeah, they're oh, in, yes. they're, yeah. they're in yes. this wonderful right. ice cave yeah. at the beginning, right? Yeah. And and so what happens was that's where Lugosi came up with that stretched arms because he's supposed to be blind. So what people don't realize is that stereotype image of Frankenstein with the straight that's arms Lugosi. lurching is Lugosi in, and it's because he doesn't, he can't see where he's going. That's cool. And, and, and we're, that's so amazing. And there are scenes where Lugosi's mouth is moving, but... But somewhere in the middle of the movie, they decide, no, this isn't working. And they make no mention of the blindness or that he could speak. And uh, I was under the impression that the not speaking part of it was because he just couldn't get rid of his accent. And suddenly the Frankenstein. But but, that might make sense if it's Igor's brain. mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's and it's like Lugosi. Gets blamed for giving a horrible performance, yeah, but so that's much so of it, not fair. Yeah, yeah, he gave horrible performances in other <laughs> things. <laughs> He's but great like, as Igor. It's, yeah, it's one of his finest Igor hours. Yeah, proves what a great stage actor yeah. Lugosi probably yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because there's there's one scene in Ghost of Frankenstein. He meets up with Sir Cedric Hardwick, and uh, he wants him to operate on him. And and Cedric Hardwick's, you know, the one of the sons of Frankenstein, 
and he says, No, I have a good life here. I have a family, the respect of the community, and a, and a, a respectable practice. And Lugosi goes, And you wouldn't want to ruin that, would you? <laughs> Gilbert, we've got to we've got to go on stage somewhere, and you've got to do the entire movie. Yeah, you've got to do all the parts. Don't you think we should do this, Rupert? Oh, do, it's, a, it's, do some kind of reenactment. I'm, I'm sitting here, and it's I know uh, uh, uncanny. Well, I mean, I I didn't know you had quite this arsenal of. Uh, of oh, he of, has a repertoire. Of, of these guys, it's amazing. Gilbert, I'm told your car is a few minutes away, so we're Ooh. gonna we're gonna wrap up with uh, with Rupert. But I'm gonna ask him a couple of questions quickly from the fans. This is Grill the Guest. <laughs> Rupert, and you're getting grilled. Uh, Laura Pinto, I loved Rupert's show. Thanks for having him back. Uh, thanks for mentioning Ron Dante. I'm a friend of his, and I was, I was also friends with Sal DeTroya. Sal DeTroya, who played uh, the famous riff of uh, Everybody's Talking at Me. Everybody's Talking at Me. Yes. Who played on all my sessions and was masterful. Yes, she says, thank you for remembering and acknowledging. Great guy. Uh, acknowledging him. And my question is, what are you working on? What's coming? What um, projects? I'm working on uh, my third novel for Simon & Schuster called um, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, Murder Your Employer. It's volume one. <laughs> it's a self-help. I'm not, this is not a joke. It's a self-help I, guy, uh, I love series it. for murders. I love it. Uh, it's about a, a college you go to in 1950-so to learn how to cre- commit really elegant and, and perfect murders. And it's like the best college you could ever hope to go to, except that you're studying how to kill people. A great idea. And uh, working on a uh, new adaptation of Agatha Christie's Witness for the Prosecution. Not a musical, just a straight stage play. I have a play called Kennedy Reagan um, about um, a, a, a meeting between John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office in 1981 in a universe where John F. Kennedy survived Dallas. Wow. And they're going to run against each other because Kennedy never served a second term because of his injuries in Dallas. And... Reagan's been shot at now, and he's brought in Kennedy, and then, what? That's a fun what if. Yeah, well, it is a fun what if. And uh, musical, uh, we're going to musical about Andy Warhol, and a musical adaptation uh, with produced in part by Ron Dante of uh, Name That Tune, a musical, a book musical with a story based on the Name That Tune. Oh, I'm glad you and Ron are doing something. And my ice cream truck route is. uh, I was going to say, you need to find some things to do. Yeah. (laughs) Cherry vanilla is the flavor this week. Here's one more quick uh, uh, from John Suntries. He wants to know Remember when I loved Rupert's uh, AMC TV show about the golden age of radio, which we still haven't managed to talk about in two episodes with you. We'll get to it in a, in a future one. Uh, will it ever come to DVD or will it stream anywhere? Where can we find it? Um, AMC has uh, is trying to do uh, a George Orwell thing. They're trying to make this series never ha- having existed. They went out and said that Mad Men was their first TV series, and it wasn't. AMC's first TV series was Remember When. We did 56 episodes. The critics loved it as much as they loved Mad Men. But then they changed their image, and they don't want to have anyone knowing that there was ever this not-in-your-face, period, 1939 setting, radio sh- uh, TV series, no laugh track, no commercials, and and the kind of humor that, that you'd find in screwball comedies of that period. I loved writing it. I wrote almost every episode. I also did the musical underscore. We had amazing guests. We had Phil Bosco and... Um, uh, oh, Eddie Bracken. Eddie Bracken, and, uh, Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney talking about. Um, uh, just in- incredible people, and it was... A, I get a letter every day from somebody saying, when is it coming out on DVD? And they are adamantly saying they have no plans to ever let it be seen. That's a shame. A beloved show. It is a beloved show. And uh, 
uh, they, New York Times did an article last year about this injustice, and I can only hope there's a new administration someday that doesn't think that this show that I feel like uh, who's the guy? Ub Iwerks. Ub yeah, Iwerks? yeah, Ub Iwerks. Yeah, who did all the? He did a lot of early Disney yeah. stuff, and then they pretended he never existed. Oswald the Rabbit didn't exist. Right. Alice in Cartoonland, and I feel like that. It's like they want their history to start with Mad Men. So. When we who worked in the field very hard and for very little money to do this really wonderful series, uh, we're just non-people at the moment. That's a shame. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, do I have an edge about it? Oh, gee. Can you can you tell us the Mickey Rooney story real quick? Well, oh, just no. Just, I I wrote a wonderful thing uh, for Mickey, a little piece where he shows up as uh, this. The, they keep talking about this Mr. Hardy who's going to show up, and and it turns out to be, of course, Andy Hardy grown up. And uh, he came in and he said, uh, "I'll give you one minute." And then he said anything he wanted to say, and he just said ad-libbed lines. He didn't know what the plot was, nothing. He was a little happy that day. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm Mickey Rooney. I'm just going to say things, okay? He said <laughs> things. Just gonna like say he's things. getting paid, and he did it. Was really, and I had to then write lines that would be I, – I had to write setup lines that would make the lines he said funny punchlines, but th they were just – Stream of consciousness wow. stuff, yeah. Hilarious. So like backward jokes. Yeah, backwards jokes, yes. It's Hilarious. always I, Now, I heard <laughs> Mickey Rooney, he'd be doing these shows out of town, and it was like expected, and it was a thing he did. He would, he would go to the hallway phone and call his wife to tell her how much he loves her, and while he was doing that... He'd be like fucking one of the chorus girls against the wall or having her blow him. And this was one of these things like the whole crew would go, hey, come on, Mickey's doing it again. And he'd be, <laughs> he'd be on the phone yes. with his lovely wife. Yes. And said, hey, I'm Mickey Rooney. Well, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of debate in Hollywood about Lon Chaney versus Mickey Rooney. Uh, what a bigger <laughs> game. Yeah. 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 A, a pro does a callback. <laughs> no. As a professional. It was actually between Chaney or George Zucco. <laughs> <laughs> hey, your wife's pissed. We got to put you in a cab. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I have to start leaving because I, I got to promote my documentary, Gilbert, which is a documentary of my life. But anyway, <laughs> this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast and with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre and we and and Rupert, Rupert Holmes. We have to have you back. My God, because this it, this didn't feel like an interview at all. This is like three like scary nerds who know way <laughs> too much about movies the, they shouldn't. The good news, though, uh, Gil, is that absolutely no one is listening. At this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> I want to say to the one person out there, we know who you are and we love you and you're dear to us. We okay? got we got listeners, buddy. <laughs> I know you do. We, I know you do. We could get you back every week. I know you do. We'll we'll tell we'll talk about Ray Harryhausen fun. next this, time. Great this fun. was a lot of fun. You, this this felt like just sitting around. Yeah. yeah. Will That's, you be our Tony Randall? Will you just come I in would, every? Would I, you come in every week? Uh, you you. <laughs> I, I would I I would love it. Uh, I, I'm not holding you to it, but I I just I was hoping we could do something like this where it wasn't about yes. me and then I did this because I just thought we could talk. Good. about it. And I have a feeling you could have. It didn't have to be about anything at all. We, we all have all these. Connection. Absolutely. You know. And and sorry with, I failed you on the early the car. Three of us, it starts flying off in all different yeah. directions. Yeah. We could bring back quad. 
Yes. <laughs> I promise to get to the Gerard Damiano story next oh, time. Oh, yeah, we should. Next time. Yeah, that's, a, that's good. We okay. should do that. You got it, brother. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. You have reached a disconnected